Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and good afternoon. My name is Katie Hafner. I'm a journalist, and I write quite a bit about healthcare for the New York Times. I'm also host of our, the Our Mothers Ourselves weekly podcast. I'll be your moderator for today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. I am pleased to be here today with Dr. Jim Gordon, founder and executive director of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine and the author of the recent book, The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. The book came out in late 2019, and in it, Dr. Gordon offers the first comprehensive evidence-based program for reversing the biological and psychological damage from trauma and through the challenges that trauma presents, discovering the people we are meant to be. In the midst of a global pandemic, a severe economic crisis, and a reckoning on racial equity in America, I can't think of a more important time than right now to discuss overcoming trauma. Dr. Gordon was a researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health, and chaired the advisory council to the NIH when they started to look at complementary, that's with an E, by the way, and alternative medicine. And under both presidents, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, he chaired the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy. He is also a clinical professor of psychiatry and family medicine at Georgetown Medical School. So Dr. Gordon, is it okay if I call you Jim? Jim is fine, Katie. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, so, Jim, let's jump in. This is such an important discussion, um, and I'd like to take it uh, uh, kind of linearly um, and not jump into the um, the pandemic and the trauma of not just our country but our world right now. And I'd like what I'd like to do is read um, to set the uh, set the foundation, set the the groundwork for um, kind of what trauma is and how we understand it. I'm gonna read a tiny little excerpt from your book that helps put it into perspective. Here's what you wrote, and so beautifully, by the way. Thank you. Trauma comes to all of us, and its consequences can be terrible. That's the truth and the bad news. The good news is that all of us can use tools of self-awareness and self-care to heal our trauma, and indeed, to become healthier and more whole than we've ever been. So why don't you take it from there and give us a quick primer on trauma? Sure. Um, trauma, first of all, is a Greek word. It means injury, injury to the body, mind, spirit. And usually when one of those is injured, so is the rest of the re those other categories and all of us. And, and I think the important point is that trauma is something that comes to all of us. It's not just something that happens to those other people in the middle of a war or that happens to people who grew up in the most horrendous of families. That trauma often comes early in life if you grow up in a community where there's a great deal of violence, if you're in an abusive or neglectful family, if you're very poor. Poverty is quite traumatizing. And also there are small children who have serious illnesses, which themselves are traumatic. If trauma doesn't come then, it may well come in young adulthood or in midlife, 
when we lose relationships that are of vital importance to us or have terrible disappointments in our expectations of who we're meant to be, or when we lose family members who we love. And then if we're fortunate enough to live to be old, it will inevitably come as we grow more frail, as we deal with loss of people we love, and as we deal with the trauma that faces all humans of our inevitable death. So it's, it's a part of life. And this is an understanding that goes, that is very deep in all Aboriginal societies, and it's deep in all religious and spiritual traditions. And that we somehow, especially in the United States, we've acted as if, well, no, it's, if we do this or we do that or we do the other thing, it's not going to come. And if it comes, if we feel traumatized, there must be something wrong with us. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. This is a part of life and not apart from it. So you're saying nobody escapes trauma. Um, and I think that one thing that our society tends to do is um, sort of categorize trauma. Oh, his trauma was far worse than my little problem. Um, and where do you put that in your work, that, that phenomenon? Well, that's part of the prob larger problem with our societies. We're always comparing who's is bigger, who's is smaller. And so you may feel, oh, you know, I really have this big trauma or my, and, you know, pride yourself on that in some way, or, well, it wasn't really so bad. And then you diminish yourself, neither one of which is particularly helpful. I think that what, what I've seen in working with people all over the world for the last really 50 years who've been traumatized in many ways is that if we really take a look at what's going on, that we can all, instead of diminishing our trauma, we can all appreciate what has happened to us. And if the trauma is overwhelming, that does not inhibit us from also feeling compassionate to other people who look like they have suffered less than we have. And the other thing is, we often have no idea. And we really, I mean, this is a discovery that I keep remaking, I don't know about you, is I really don't know people that well until I really do know them well. And we have these expectations and these ideas. Well, if that happens, then that person is very seriously traumatized or not much has happened to that person. And we mm -hmm. really don't know. And it, right. Yeah, you never really of know, right? Of our humanity. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, back up just a little bit. And um, you've um, been doing this for quite a while. Well, tell us the story of how you got interested in specializing in trauma. Well, you know, in a way, the story goes back to early childhood. I had parents who were rather, and some of our viewers, and maybe you would recognize this, my parents were somewhat on the crazy side and extremely combative. And so from an early age, I could see the damage that they were doing to each other. And I was the oldest child and I was often enough enlisted, uh, sometimes implicitly and sometimes quite explicitly, please help me. And, you know, your mother's crazy or your father's crazy. So right from an early age, I grew up in a, in a kind of climate that was somewhat traumatic. I mean, I obviously survived. What, what I, you know, but being interested in trauma is also, this is, if you will, it's the bread and butter of psychiatry. Modern psychiatry 
starts with the discovery by Freud and Breuer and Janet and, and those people of the effects of early life trauma in creating later life psychological and physical symptoms. So as a psychiatrist, uh, I was sort of focused on when I first read Freud's introductory lectures, and I was about 16, I thought, that's amazing. To Here is why this is happening to this person. And if you look at the dreams and you look at the slips of the tongue and you look, then you can understand what's going on and it goes back often enough to difficult situations. So I became interested intellectually. And then the other thing is as a medic, I can't say that I was the most compassionate college student, but once I started wor working on the medical wards as a, you know, quite a young person, I was, I don't know, 20 or so when I went to medical school, I could, you know, I, I could just feel the compassion and I could feel the need of people who were overwhelmed and frightened and facing life-threatening situations. And I didn't think of it so much as trauma. I thought, okay, these are patients in the hospital and they have these conditions and let me be there for them. I may not be able to do the surgery. I may not know all the details of the pharmacopoeia, but at least I could sit with people. And I, what I saw from an really from those first days on medical wards and with kids too, is people really wanted someone to share these painful, challenging experiences of the illnesses they had and also of being in the hospital, which itself is traumatic, which we tend to forget often enough. So I just became interested, and I, I was always interested in people's stories, and so I wanted to hear their stories, and I could see that by them telling me the stories of their trauma, of their challenges, it was helpful to them, and, and, and I could be useful. So that got me started. Well, actually, I was I was trying to uh, tease you into uh, telling me the, the story of, um, you opened the book, I, I think, with this... Um, this encounter with a patient who had been Robert Coles's patient, is that right? Um, Di Diana? Uh, yeah, she was, she was a patient on the, um, on a, she'd been in psychiatric wards and in, uh, in the Bronx and she, yeah, with Diana. And I met her in the emergency room in Jacoby, the public hospital in the Bronx, yes. And, <laughs> I mean, well, I was riveted by this, so. She came in, and she was very she was very interesting and sort of intriguing person, very intelligent. She came in in the middle of the night, and uh, very smart, and kind of tough, wised up, as Bronx people can be. We have wised up, smart, hip. And then she proceeded to tell me, start telling me the story of what was going on with her, and her impulses to put her children's heads in the oven, and that she was thinking of killing herself because her therapist was leaving because he was a psychiatric resident as I was, and he was, and and, and I, there was this combination of this really intelligent, kind of wise cracking young woman in the Bronx, only a couple of years younger than I was, at the same time who was desperate and who was ready to kill herself and who was doing these kinds of crazy, threatening things with her children. And I, I became interested and I began to wonder, you know, I, I wanted to be helpful to her. And she need, and what, I, what she told me later, it was only sort of dimly apparent to me, is she was looking for a new therapist and she was kind of auditioning me and other psychiatric residents to see who would take over 
when her therapist, who was the chief resident, finished his residency. So mm -hmm. periodically, while I was on my midnight shift in the psychiatric emergency room, she would come in with yet another set of symptoms. And eventually, after a while, I said, okay, do you want to work with, you know, do you want to work with me on an ongoing basis? And, and she said, yes. I mean, I'm sure she made some smart ass remarks to me in the process, mm -hmm. but eventually she said yes. And so we began to work together and she, you know, her diagnosis was a, she was diagnosed as a borderline personality, multiple personalities, schizoaffective, schizophrenic, suicidally depressed. And she really became my teacher over the next two years yeah. as we worked together very, very intensively, three, four, sometimes five times a week, I would see that was possible then back in the Yeah, I, I loved that line of yours when you said I was her doctor and she was my teacher. And I really stopped and thought, oh my goodness. Yep. How great is that? And, but the, there's this pivotal moment in that scene where she says, I, I'm garbage. I stink. And you got, and this is getting to the root of her trauma was that her mother would put her head in the garbage can, yes. right? So I just had this sense of just how, how deep that trauma went and how, and how um, mentally ill she became from it. And my guess is that since you told that story as an early experience of yours, that it really shaped you. She, she really was my, she taught me how to be a, a therapist how to really Amazing. be with another human being who had been through hell. Living with her, her mother was, as you described her, doing, and it wasn't the only thing she did. And what in a sense was really so satisfying to me was to enter into her world and create a place of safety where she could share and sometimes act out the things that had happened. So she would, she really was acting out that scene, this is about a year into my therapy with her, she was acting out that scene of being garbage, of her mother sticking her head in the garbage. And she was sharing that with me and saying to me, I trust you enough to share with you this terrible thing that I have never told anyone in my life. And it okay, was so that her. And, you know, it, it was part of the, you know, it was, it was, well, it was how we were able to connect with each other over this sort of human bridge that we created between us. So the bridge that you built with her was very much person to person, but you then went on to work with entire populations of traumatized people. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, beginning when, when I was a resident and, and really even a little bit earlier, I, I became interested in what I could do to help myself. I mean, this is, again, this goes back to the roots of modern psychiatry, which are in Freud's self-analysis and in everybody looking inside themselves. So I was in therapy when I was in medical school. I was in analysis when I was a resident. And I was discovering things about myself. And I was beginning to discover my own capacity to understand and help myself. And as I discovered that capacity in myself, I figured, well, I'm not that different from all other human beings. We're much more alike. That's a kind of quote from the famous psychiatrist, Harry Stack Sullivan about schizophrenics. 
He said, well, we're all more fundamentally human than otherwise. He's absolutely right. So I thought if I can learn to understand and help myself, I can help other people to do it. And as time went on, as I began to learn many tools of self-care for myself, physical exercise and yoga and meditation and Tai Chi and Qigong and food, as I began to learn how they can make a difference in my life, I began to realize that it wasn't just about talking with people and giving them a safe place. That was really important. But that beyond that, there were all these tools that I was learning that worked on me biologically and psychologically that I could share with other people. And then as I was doing that, I became interested in the possibility of doing that, not just with individuals, but also doing it on a large scale. And, and really from the beginning, even during my residency, uh, when I became chief resident, especially when I would bring together all the patients and all the staff, and we could share with each other in a, hopefully in an honest way or reasonably honest way, what was going on, I could see the enormous benefits of people just feeling connected with other people. And they didn't, nobody had to tell them what to do or what to think. But if, if you're talking about what's going on with you and I'm paying attention, I'm feeling a human connection and that's helping me. And your mm -hmm. discoveries are helping me make my discoveries. So I, I learned that early on. And then I became interested in teaching when I was at the National Institute of Mental Health, became interested in teaching these techniques. I learned the science of these techniques, the meditations and the guided imagery and the movement and dance and drawings. And I began to share them with other people and then uh, become interested. Well, if we can do this with individuals, what about the possibility of doing this on a much larger scale? And so initially the work was in small groups. And then as I saw the power of the small groups, I became interested in seeing if the same model that could be successful in small groups would be one that could translate to whole communities. And by the time I started the Center for Mind-Body Medicine about 30 years ago, that was really very, very much on my mind, is how to work with whole communities, how to give everyone these tools, which seem to me like basic tools that everybody should have for you know, living a fuller, healthier, more interesting, more enjoyable life and for dealing with the life crises that inevitably come. Well, walk us through one of the groups you worked with and how you helped them. I'm, I'm sorry, Katie? Walk us through one of the groups you worked with and how you helped them. Well, you know, in, in the beginning, the work with groups, this was... Uh, Really, what I was, after I'd finished, I was at National Institute of Mental Health about 10 years. And, and afterwards, I was in private practice here in Washington, D.C., and I was writing. I was writing for the New York Times and the Washington Post. I was writing. I was in private practice. Um, and I began to want to work on a larger scale. And, and one of the, the first groups that I began to work with and some of the therapists that I was supervising were interested in were people with life-threatening illnesses, people who are dealing with cancer, people who are HIV positive in particular, also people with very serious uh, chronic pain and heart disease and so on. So I said, 
Well, it makes more sense, instead of teaching each person individually these techniques of self-care, let's bring them together in a group. And let's, it's more economical, it's more efficient, plus everybody is there learning together and supporting each other. So those are the initial groups that I worked with were people with life-threatening illness and also with medical students who mm -hmm. were suffering their own trauma in their mm -hmm. own way. And I remembered back to being a medical student myself. So I began really, I don't know, 35, 40 years ago you know, to work with my Georgetown medical students and groups and mm -hmm. to say, let's come together, come, you know, come share what's going on with you. Let me teach you a few techniques. So I was working with the medical students. I and my colleagues were working with uh, people with life-threatening illness. And then once I started the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, we began to work with uh, kids from the Latin American Youth Center. A friend of mine ran the Latin American Youth Center and they worked primarily, the kids were from El Salvador. They, they had left a war zone. Many of them were here in the United States without without parents, they were staying with relatives here, and they'd gone through a lot. And so the first real program, major program we did at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine is I brought together um, my Georgetown medical students with Latino high school students who were interested in health professions who had been significantly traumatized. And we did a whole program of this for this joint group of uh, Latino high school students and Georgetown medical students and the medical students were mentors and we created groups where everyone could learn the techniques and share their experiences. So that's how we got started. Uh, we created a curriculum in mind-body medicine and the work that we're doing now 30 years later is a kind of lineal descendant. The curriculum, many of those elements are still there now because this is the techniques we're using are basic basic ways of working with human biology and human psychology drawn from many cultures. Okay, so let's break it down a bit. When you say mind-body medicine, integrative, complementary, what are you really talking about? Well, I've sort of moved beyond the whole complementary, alternative, and integrative. This whole movement started in the really the early 1970s. People were looking at Western medicine and asking the question for themselves and if they were physicians or nurses for their patients, what else can I do beyond what conventional medicine has to offer? So we started exploring. I got interested in Chinese medicine in the late 1960s. And I became interested in acupuncture. I was interested in meditation at the same time for me initially and just out of curiosity. So back then, politely, those were called alternative therapies. Some people just said, that's total quackery. This is, that doesn't do any good. That's superstition. At best, it's a placebo. It's this a was in the 60s, in the 60s. Charlatan's tricks. Mm -hmm. But I'm a researcher. I'm a, you know, kind of a scientist, I suppose. And so I started looking at the science. And I started looking at how meditation worked. I started looking at some of the early studies that were coming out of China on the physiology of acupuncture as well as the clinical studies. So I began to explore these techniques to see how they might work on me. Physical exercise, another one, yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong. In the beginning, again, people were saying, oh, you know, okay, if you want to do that, that's kind of airy fairy stuff. But 
looking at these approaches carefully, testing them in myself, and beginning when I was satisfied that they were both safe and effective, sharing them with other people, we began to build up a kind of um, curriculum, began to build up a whole uh, panoply of approaches that worked, that were beneficial, that did no harm, that were easily teachable. So at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, we don't teach acupuncture. That's not self-care. You need to go to school for some time to learn how to do it. But we teach a variety of different forms of meditation. We, we teach guided mental imagery, self-expression and words and drawings and movement. We use biofeedback, feedback of signals about what's going on in your biology that can come to your brain that can then help you control your biology. Science is very, I mean, you you know, you live in San Francisco. Some of this early work was done by Joe Kamaya at UCSF in the 1960s. And it was done at Yale by Neil Miller and at Menninger's by Elmer and Elise Green. So in the beginning, people looked at these brilliant researchers as just kind of weirdos, you know, what were they interested in? But little by little, as the research accumulated, we began to see how useful these approaches could be. So I was, you know, one of those people who was curious and who was experimenting and who was studying these approaches. And then when I started the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, and I had about 25 volunteers working with me, doctors, nurses, school teachers. One of the people who was our, one of our volunteers was a professional gambler, which I took as a very, uh, as a good sign. <laughs> and we put together a curriculum. It was a good, what was a good sign? The professional well, gambler? He was a professional gambler in a sense. Oh, that's how he made a living. And uh -huh. he was gambling on us. He was putting, he wasn't getting any money. He was putting out his time and energy. And he was very interested, actually, he was in, very interested in maternal infant bonding and in how the relationship between bonding in early life and bonding in therapeutic relationships. So he made some contributions. Other people did research on different forms of meditation. Other people looked at music and how it could affect the mind. So all of these therapies, which were originally called alternative, other than conventional, then complementary as they were used with conventional therapies. Now, many of them are re regarded as part of an integrative approach to medicine. And our focus is the Center for Mind-Body Medicine because we're focusing on the continual, complete, uh, continual interaction and complete interpenetration of mind and body and how we can use these techniques to enter into this continual um, molecular and physiological conversation going on among every part of our brain and every organ and cell of our body. How mind-body medicine says that's a reality and let's see how we can enter into this conversation and use our mind to affect our body, use our body to affect our mind. So you also worked with the um, the children, uh, the families at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School after that shooting. Is that right? Yes, we, we had been working with them uh, since uh, within a couple months after February fourteenth, twenty eighteen, when uh, gunmen came and killed seventeen people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas the High School. And it's an example of the work that we do. And we were called in 
to the high school uh, superintendent, Robert Runcie, very visionary man, had uh, heard about what we were doing. And very interestingly, one of the places he'd heard about it is from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is funding this series at the Commonwealth Club. And so uh, our managing director, Rosemary Moraine, knew someone from Chan Zuckerberg who knew our work. And they kind of put us together with Superintendent Runcie and we had meetings with the superintendent and, and what they needed was the school was in a, a real state of turmoil. This is so devastating, not just to the kids in those classrooms, not just to those teachers, but to the entire school. And as a, and, and the reality is also to all of Broward County. So kids 40 minutes away from Stoneland Douglas were having anxiety attacks about going to school after the shootings. So we began work at MSD, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. It's a school with 3,500 kids. We did a whole series of workshops for teachers, clinicians in the community, for kids, for parents, for first responders, for police. And we introduced ourselves and then we began a training program in the summer of 2018. And the whole idea of our work is always to teach local people what we have to offer, this model of self-care and self-awareness and group support, and then to teach them how to use it with their community. So we've continued to work. We've trained maybe 350 adults in Broward County, 160 or 70 teenage kids are doing our work. They're, some of them are called peer counselors. Some of them are part of the ambassadors club. And they're using our model with other kids. And we're continuing. We just got, uh, we're going to be continuing for at least two years more. And what we're, what we're seeing is enormous changes. Because we're working not just, this is a public health issue. This is not, I think one of the difficulties when people and whole communities are traumatized is there's a tendency oh, let's send this one to the therapist and that one to the psychiatrist. Everybody is affected. And what's needed primarily as the foundational approach is an educational approach that everyone can use. And you don't have to have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder or major depression. Everybody who has been in this kind of situation, who has lived through this kind of event, needs some needs the tools to help them not only recover, but to become more resilient and perhaps to learn new things about themselves through the challenges. So that's what we're doing. And we're um, teaching yeah, in that community to do it. I'd like to segue with that. That's a perfect segue into our traumatized nation. Um, and I'd really like to focus on, uh, you know, uh, let's forget the rest of the world for just a minute and talk about what's happening in the United States uh, with the pandemic, with a truly traumatized nation from that, um, and from the repercussions and consequences of the George Floyd shooting. I think in everybody, in their own way, is is deeply traumatized. And I'd really love, and I'm sure the audience would love, to learn from you what we can do on an individual and also community level to deal with what we're going through. Thank you. And, and, and you know, you're, you're, you're putting it 
quite accurately, everybody is traumatized. And it, it takes many, many different forms. And the isolation and separation for many people compounds the trauma. But I think that the, the, the first place we start is from events. This COVID-19 pandemic is something way beyond the control of any individual. And here in the United States, it's clearly been beyond the control of our national, of our federal government. And people feel a sense of uncertainty that I don't ever remember in my lifetime here in the United States, that we don't know exactly what's going on. This is a kind of invisible invader. It can affect, yes, it affects the most vulnerable, uh, brown and black people, people with low incomes, people who are older, physically ill, and it can affect everyone. And so it's, and it's everywhere as we're discovering. So it's something way beyond our control. It's ominous. Uh, we don't have a sense of when or if it's going to end. And so that, that is causing trauma to everyone. And we all react differently. Some people become very anxious. Some come depressed. Some become very angry. Some wall themselves off. Uh, some feel colossally dependent. Others are furious. You know, I, I think that you may say, well, what about those people who are out with their automatic weapons and saying, no, I'm not going to wear a mask? That's not exactly um, sort of, as not exactly uninflected, untraumatized behavior. I mean, why? <laughs> it's part of this reaction of anxiety and anger and denial, the level of denial is also in some ways symptomatic of trauma. So we're all affected. And the leaders who say, no, it's all it's, it's going to be okay, don't worry about it, they're, they're denying the reality because it is, for various reasons, too difficult, too painful, too challenging them for them to look at. And that's what sometimes happens with trauma. What should we do, Jim? Well, I'm glad we're talking. Talking about it is the beginning, recognizing exactly the way you introduced this, saying the pandemic has brought trauma to everyone, and we all need to understand and accept it. And that's the first step in dealing with trauma outside of the pandemic, is understanding that something is going on, something's happening here. And may, what it is may not be exactly clear, but it is happening. So that's the first step, is realizing that something is happening to us and that it's understandable that we are affected. That's number one. Number two is bringing ourselves into biological and psychological balance. This is crucial. And this is where I start. I start really start in two places in, in the transformation as, a, as I create this or present this comprehensive trauma healing program. The first is with hope. That is, even if you recognize, or as you recognize how overwhelming and distressing this pandemic is and how traumatized you may be, there is hope for moving through this trauma. That's one of the reasons I tell Diana's story right up front, is here is someone who's colossally traumatized, who was able to very significantly move through her trauma and come out on the other side. And I tell a number of stories like that to give people hope and then I share research with them, research on the use of the model that 
I described that we use in uh, that I describe in the transformation that we use in Broward County and in war zones that 80% of people who are have diagnosable post-traumatic stress disorder no longer qualify for that diagnosis after 10 weeks of practicing the approaches in the transformation. So that's hope. Yep, that's and, and hope. And beyond that, teaching very basic techniques to balance our psychology and our biology. And you mentioned meditation. Meditation is designed just simply breathing slowly and deeply and relaxing. That is the antidote to the fight or flight response which trauma evokes. And we're not talking here about, you know, an hour a day. It can be as little as five minutes of focused breathing, right? I mean, yes. It- yeah. You know, five minutes, what, what, you know, some of the research is absolutely staggering. Some of the research that's been done both at, at Harvard and interestingly at UCSF, showing the people who meditate for, this is a little bit more, as little as 20 minutes a day, that those people not only can feel significantly better, decrease anxiety, improve their mood, they also change brain functioning and brain structure. And what I've observed is that people, and you mentioned five minutes, who take five minutes or even less, two or three times a day, they can make a major difference in how they feel and in how they deal with the stressful events in their life. I'd like to turn to questions from the audience. And here's a very interesting one. Could you talk about the trauma healing diet? Sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of smiling because that, that's what the chapter is called in, in the book, the trauma healing diet. And I, I think this is very important because virtually, I've never seen another book that talks in any detail or even many of them even about trauma that even mentions the power of diet on, uh, on relieving trauma. The first thing to understand is that we register trauma in our brain, for sure. The emotional brain is in you know, the centers of fear and anger and the amygdala, amygdala, which is a portion of the emotional brain, are, are in a hyperdrive. They're really frenzied. And the frontal cortex, the part of the brain responsible for thinking and careful decision-making and self-awareness is kind of shut down. And the hippocampus, which helps to mediate stress and memory, that's damaged as well. But also our whole gastrointestinal tract from the top to the bottom is damaged by psychological trauma. So we need to address this in a comprehensive program of trauma healing. So first thing we need to do is to bring some mindfulness into our eating, to bring some of, first of all, bringing in a a little bit of relaxation, a more meditative attitude. When we're in fight or flight response, our our gastrointestinal tract is not working very well. If you think about it evolutionarily, if you're being chased by a lion uh, and you're a gazelle, you don't stop for a snack. That's the end of your life if you do. So your GI tract gastrointestinal tract doesn't work. We need to bring it back online with meditation. Also, we need to think about what we're eating to choose our foods more mindfully. And many healthy diets will will be helpful to our gastrointestinal tract, which in turn affects our brain. 
It's a long chapter, but one of the very interesting pieces is the vagus nerve, V-A-G-U-S nerve, is, resp is responsible for being the antidote to the fight or flight response. Fight or flight is the sympathetic half and neuroscientists, please forgive me for oversimplifications. It's the sympathetic half of our autonomic nervous system. It creates fight or flight. The vagus nerve is a major part of the parasympathetic nervous system. It helps us to relax, to rest and digest. Sympathetic nervous system is the accelerator. Parasympathetic nervous system is the brakes. When we meditate, we activate the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve, which is much of it is here in our gastrointestinal tract. It sends signals back to our brain. It helps to rebuild the hippocampus, which is damaged by stress and trauma. If we, when our gut is under stress, when our small intestine especially is under stress, the cells that line the, the wall of the small intestine, epithelial cells or endothelial, I'm sorry, endothelial cells, instead of being close together and having what's called tight junctions, they <clears throat> separate. And proteins that are not meant to go into our bloodstream leak across our gut, go into our bloodstream and create inflammation in many places in our body they may create it in, the, in our joints or in our brain and cause depression, anxiety. This is new science that we're just discovering and interfere with cognitive functioning. So we need to repair our gut to bring those endothelial cells together. So eating a healthy diet, supplementing with probiotics looks like it can be helpful as well. Eating so you, slowly and are mindfully. You, are you a probiotics fan? I'm I'm a fan insofar as they as we have everything to gain and nothing that I'm able to discern to lose. The the research is still early stages, mm -hmm. but we know the trauma affects the microbiome in a negative way. That mm -hmm. it uh, promotes the growth of unhealthy bacteria, suppresses the growth of healthy bacteria. So a combination of eating prebiotic foods, lots of vegetables. Uh, skins of vegetables and fruits that are prebiotic. Plus, I suggest taking probiotics. Also, a high-dose multivitamin, multimineral. There's research that was done in New Zealand, and including some very good randomized controlled trials on people who were traumatized by the earthquake there. And those people who took a high-dose multivitamin uh, and multimineral did better. They were less anxious, they slept better, they were less frantic, less irritable than people who didn't. Once mm -hmm. again, there's the research is there. It's not definitive, I wouldn't, you know, but there's nothing to be lost and it may well make a difference. So eating a healthy diet, probiotics, vitamins, I would say also probably having additional omega-3 fish oils or omega-3 um, flaxseed can be helpful. It helps to uh, increase communication among brain cells. And in a number of studies, has been shown to help people whose moods are lower. Anyway, all of those things, all of those nutritional, and, and I go into this in considerable detail in the transformation. It's really important. And, I, and people, you know, the, the research is there. There are hundreds and hundreds of studies. And if it's not 
you know, if it's not utterly ironclad, the recommendations, the worst thing that'll happen is you'll feel a little better and you'll be a little healthier in the long run and mm -hmm. less likely to develop chronic illnesses. So why not? I just need to ask one small question. Did I hear you say, don't peel our carrots? Don't peel, no, just wash them, don't peel them. We, huh. we, tend, to, we tend to peel everything and we we're, taking out, we're taking out the good parts of, uh, of the vegetable. People peel potatoes all the time. Most of the nutrients are there in the skin. You don't want to peel your potatoes. If you want to have, if you want to have a mashed potato, mash it with the skin on. It's, I, I think it's much more tasty. And any other foods? I mean, I have to confess, I do love a glazed donut once in a while. Is that okay, or is it going to stress us out? Well, I, uh, I know, I know the answer. You know what happens is when when we're <laughs> when we're traumatized, is we go to comfort foods. We go to right. sweet, sweety things, salty things, fatty things. And that's not because we're dopes. It's because those foods give us a lift. They increase the levels of dopamine, which is a kind of, you know, energizing, feel-good hormone. They increase serotonin, which is calming, increase endorphins in the brain. They decrease the stress hormone cortisol, and they decrease painful memories. So there's no wonder we go to them. The issue is short-term benefit has to be balanced against long-term damage. So mm -hmm. eat a little comfort food. I, you know, I, I have a little bit of sweet now and then, but instead of having a pint of ice cream, have two or three tablespoons. That's where mindful eating comes in. Get that little lift, get that sort of memory of that your mom or some nice person giving you ice cream when you were a kid. Oh. Uh, but But don't, you know, don't be mindless about it. Take it in mindfully, appreciate the lift. So this is a, potentially this time when we're paying more attention is a time when we really can make very significant changes for the better through mm -hmm. bringing, incorporating these various self-care techniques, including having a trauma healing diet. Well, speaking of being a kid, here's a really um, tough question from an audience member. And the question is, how can I be it? Well, it's how can I best, but they might have meant how can I beat, but might have meant how can I best my early experiences? Well, I think one thing to understand is that this time of the pandemic is one in which earlier difficult experiences often are coming to the surface. So mm. I've talked with so many people, for example, a number of women who were raped or have been seriously harassed, uh, some of whom thought, I've worked all that through, they're feeling it again during this time. The sense of not, of being out of control, of being confined, of not being able to do anything, that is bringing up these memories of earlier abuse and of earlier very traumatic experiences. So that first thing is to understand that that's happening. Uh, people who are feeling, who tend to feel neglected or who have felt neglected, now with the isolation, uh, relative or even absolute isolation, a lot of those early feelings are coming up. So again, the first thing is to recognize those feelings and then ideally to bring them to the surface and to use 
some of the, use the techniques that, I, that I'm teaching in the transformation, these techniques of self-care to help balance us physiologically and psychologically so we can better deal with those experiences and then to share them with someone else, what's coming up, whether it's with a friend or a family member or in a mind-body skills group. We have mind-body skills groups online. We have, I think we've had 500 groups running over these last couple of months. 70 of the groups led by our Center for Mind-Body Medicine faculty, other groups led by people whom we've trained all over the United States and around the world. Find a place where you can share what's coming up with other people. And when somebody is sharing with you, you don't have to fix them. Just be there for them. Yeah. That's really what, that's one of the things I've discovered uh, being with people, working with people all these last 50 years and especially the last 30 years with major trauma, population-wide trauma, people want to be heard. They want to be understood. Most people, yeah, they'd like to feel better, but they don't want somebody to come in and say, I'm going to fix this is going on. No, they really appreciate being respected and cared for, and they like to participate in their own healing. So as we're dealing with early life experience, share it, find someone to share it, come into one of our mind body groups. There's no, we take people regardless of ability to pay and you don't have to have a psychiatric diagnosis. You just have to be interested. And the same thing with reading the transformation. It's just being interested in understanding and helping yourself. Well, you might've just answered this, but a question came in. Will your center be offering the basic mind body training soon? Well, we just last night finished a five-day training. And uh, we have training programs. People should look at look at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine website, cmbm.org. Our training program, we now have all of our training programs online. We have an open training program, which we just finished. We had close to 400 people who applied. We were only able to accommodate 170 in this program. It was our first major online program. It went beautifully. We had so many people who were working on the front lines, of uh, frontline healthcare workers. We had many people who were dealing with um, racial uh, trauma and injustice. We had 40 Native Americans as part of that 170. We had black and brown and you know, and red and yellow community organizers as well as clinicians. And you don't have to be a doctor, a nurse, or a therapist to be part of the training. You have to want to learn. You have to learn on yourself, and you have to be interested in helping other people. We have five-day training where you experience the work, you experience the small group model, uh, you learn the science. And then a few months later, we have an advanced training where we teach you so you would be most welcome, Katie, in the training. And so would many of the people here who are interested in learning and who want to share what they've learned with other people. The second five-day training, we teach you how to use what you've learned with other people. And in that training, you actually lead a group. This is part of a demystification of all of medicine. Um, you know, the, we have become too dependent on experts. We, and in doing that, we've lost the sense of what we can do for ourselves. And so we don't discriminate between, you know, when we're hit by a truck and we really need the surgeons or we have a 
major infection or an undiagnosable condition and we need the internist. But we've lost, so many of us have lost the understanding of how much we can do for ourselves. So this is what we're trying to bring back. And people who are interested in learning what we have to teach and sharing it with others, we're going to have many more trainings. We're doing trainings uh, in Broward County. We're going back down there to work, train another 300 people down there. We're working with the largest division of the Veterans Administration. By the time we're finished, we will have trained 350 people to use our work. We're going to Central Asia to work with four Central Asian republics that are trying to integrate returning ISIS fighters and their families. We have major programs in the Middle East with Israelis and Palestinians, and we're, work we're working in Haiti. have a lot of programs, and people are very welcome who want to learn what we have to teach to come into our programs. And, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of work, not so much, although we're doing work in San Francisco VA, for example, we have major programs in both Sonoma and Shasta counties after the wildfires there. And so we're very interested. And, you know, we'd, I'd love to work more in the Bay Area. We have faculty who are in the Bay Area. So that's what we're up to. We, you know, the idea is to make what we have available, make what we're teaching and learning available as widely as possible. So look on the website, check it out. And if you want to be in a group, please sign up, come join a group that we have. We who have a lot of first world problems, um, I'm one of them, like my tennis club closed down. It's so we tend to um, not speak out about what we can, what we think are sort of small compared to what everyone else is going through with this pandemic. But I think it's important if you agree with me to validate, well, let's forget the tennis club problem, but other problems, let's uh, maybe a more real trauma would be having an elderly relative in a nursing home who you cannot hug because you're on the outside. It's real, right? And it's a trauma. Yes, and you, and you know it. And you've, lo you've looked at this yourself and you know how deep that trauma is of not being able to connect with that person. It's not small at all. And people who are worried about their jobs, am I going to have a job? That is no small thing. Or what's going to happen with my kids? My kids are falling behind. So give, give us just a three-minute exercise to do. I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but we really want to know how to cope with this stuff. And you are, I hate to say, but you are an expert. <laughs> We're looking to you. I'm happy to be an expert. And the whole idea is I want to share my expertise with everybody. So mm -hmm. the, the, the first thing is really just begin by sitting sitting and breathing deeply and you can do this while you're listening and watching us just breathe deeply in through your nose out through your mouth with your belly soft and relaxed focusing on the breath perhaps coming in through your nose and out through your mouth on the word soft as you breathe in and belly as you breathe out and on the feeling of your belly softening and relaxing. And just as you do that, even for a few minutes, you're stimulating the vagus nerve 
after quieting the fight or flight response, decreasing the fear and anger in the amygdala, enhancing activity in your frontal cortex. And as you do this, and as you do this even for a few minutes, you start having, you're less anxious, less agitated. I am too. And it's easier to focus. It's easier to make decisions. It's easier to gain perspective on what is actually going on and to appreciate the pain, the difficulty, the trauma that, we're go that you may be going through. And also to put it in perspective, to say, yes, this is real. This is traumatic. And let me see how I can deal with it. Let me see what other tools and techniques I can use. But I really, just as a beginning, if, if everybody who's watching us would, as you said, I, I would say take three minutes or five minutes, two, three times a day, every day to do this, this can it can change your life. And I've had thousands of people say to me, this changed my life. This was the beginning of my understanding of what I was really going through. It was the beginning of my taking care of myself, a beginning of my using all the other techniques that are speaking to me that you, that you teach. Once I saw I could do something that would make a difference, that gave me a little confidence to use some of the other techniques. So start here. Start simply, start with this one step, and then the whole program and the transformation will open itself up to you and you can use all the techniques that are there or other techniques that you discover on your own that are helpful for you. Point I wanna make is we're all different and what may work for me may not work for you. Other thing I wanna emphasize, Katie, since I know time is, is tight, is moving our bodies is really important. We, you, you know, Many of us are further immobilized by being confined to our homes, right? Yep. We need to move. Human beings, our evolutionary program is for us to move. Our genes are the same as our hunter-gatherer ancestors, and they were moving all the time. So the more movement and exercise of whatever kind we can do, the calmer, the more centered, the more mindful we can become. There are so many things we cannot control. But if we can, and we can't reverse what happened to us in our early childhood, the trauma that was visited on us, that we then begin, that the pandemic is then somehow triggering in so many people, which is so interesting and tragic on top of the tragedy we're living in, right? Yes, we, but we can gain a new perspective on it. And we can actually further master, if you will, further master what's happened to us. And instead of just fleeing it, we can learn from it. For, for example, one young woman who was dealing with exactly this and dealing with, with having been raped some years ago, she's realizing now as that experience is coming back to her, how angry she is. And she's never been able to express her anger. And so she is now taking this time to express her anger, just to yell and scream and pound pillows and release it that way. And it's helping her. It's not only helping, uh, it's helping her to deal with that past trauma in a better way and to free herself from the remnants of it. So I think we all, it, 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 we have, again, it, it's a situation of having everything to gain and nothing to lose 
by using a variety of techniques to deal with this trauma that's coming up, but that's coming up, that's being reawakened, as well as the present trauma. And we can get, as you said at the beginning, quoting me, we can become healthier and more whole. And that is exactly what I'm seeing as we're working with hundreds and thousands of people during the pandemic. We're seeing people who say that. They start using this approach and they say, you know, this I'm, I'm sleeping better and I'm less anxious, but I also feel more confident than I did even before the pandemic. I'm also more, um, I'm sleeping better than I ever did as I start to change the way I'm living. I'm less intimidated than I ever was because I can see that I can deal with the stress of the pandemic plus deal with things that are coming up from earlier in life. So Jim, we're reaching the end of this. And um, I, uh, first, I just want to say thank you so much. This, I'd like to give you a wonderful heart here. And one quick last question. I've heard a lot over the years about how much having a pet can help with trauma. I have a prop. Ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have to say, there's nothing quite like it. Uh, my husband would agree. Um, do you have a view on um, pets and trauma? I yes, I have. Ve I, I, I don't have pets right now. I used to, for a number of years, I lived on a farm and I was surrounded by animals. And then I love that. It is very clear that um, this has been understood. Florence Nightingale was somebody who understood this and and un brought therapy with pets, brought pets onto the hospital wards. Freud said, that stern Sigmund Freud, that distant man said, my patients feel much better and they have, they're much easier. My, my little dog, Joffy, is in the consultation room with us. And now modern researchers have found, and some of the research that I'm quote in the transformation was utterly stunning, even, even to me, is that people, for example, who've had heart attacks, who have pets, are significantly more likely to live longer if they have a pet. Mm. When you have connection with animals, even if they're not pets, even if they're just animals that you're meeting in a petting zoo, even if you're looking at animals, you feel better and it makes it easier to connect with other human beings. Some of that research has been done on aut autistic kids. So pets are beautiful. I recommend, oh, you, your, your dog is uh, uh, either yawning because she or he knows it already. <laughs> oh, is he yawning? <laughs> <laughs> the animals so, know it. And they, they know, they, oh, they know it. And for me, I don't have a pet right now, but I, I, every day I'm looking at, the, I happen to live, my back of my house fronts on a park here in D.C. I look at the squirrels, I look at the birds. It brightens my spirits every day, that, that mm. connection with pets. And also, the other thing I want to add is with nature. So looking behind you at the natural world, it is deeply healing and the science is there. So please avail yourselves of whatever animals are, are are there and whatever connection with nature, even the smallest amount of nature. I used to work, I worked a lot in New York with HIV positive addicts who lived in very cramped situations, but they might have a plant 
on the fire escape. It made all the difference in the world to them. So yes, pets, nature, very healing. Jim Gordon, I would like to thank you so much for today's discussion. This brings this Commonwealth Club program to a close. I encourage everyone to purchase Dr. Gordon's new book, The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. I'm Katie Hafner, and this virtual Commonwealth Club program is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.